Howdy, everybody. I'm Corbin Gregg. And I'm Kate Galliford. To kick off our two-part special 2020 election coverage, for today's episode, we invited Brandon Sapienza and Ava Peabody on to have a long-form conversation about the upcoming election and why they support President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, respectively. Brandon is a current FCLC senior studying journalism and was born and raised in Brooklyn, where he continues to reside today. Ava is a FCLC sophomore studying journalism and political science and is originally from Arlington, Virginia. If you're interested to hear more political opinions from today's guests, visit the Fordham Observer's website to find their articles on Amy Coney Barrett and more. As political science majors ourselves, we really recognize the importance of amplifying young political voices. We hope that the conversation that takes place this episode of Retrospect will encourage all our young listeners to think more about their political positions and encourage conversation among the student body. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. We are now joined by Lincoln Center students Brandon Sapienza, who plans to vote for Donald Trump, and Ava Peabody, who will be voting for Biden, to talk about the upcoming November election and why they support their respective candidates. Brandon and Ava, thanks for joining us. We're really excited to have a dialogue with you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. It was announced that the topics for tonight's final presidential debate will be fighting COVID-19, American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and leadership. We think this covers a pretty broad range of issues, and we have developed some questions based on these broad themes. However, we'd like to ask a few questions to get a sense of where you stand as individual voters beyond just party or a candidate. And we encourage you to use those opportunities to focus the conversation on topics that you find to be most important. We encourage you to respond to each other once the person has finished responding to the question that they were just asked. And if you would like to make a counter argument or have more to add to the conversation topic, please do so. Let's start off with a general question. We'd like to hear uh, what sort of political issues are most important to you as a voter and where does your preferred candidate stand on the issues? So if you'd like to list just one or two core problems that have really influenced you as a voter, talk about your candidate's stance on them, and then also if you would like to discuss the position of his opponent, if that helps make your case, you can feel free. So why don't we start with Brandon? So for me, the two biggest issues um, fall in both domestic and foreign policy. Uh, For foreign policy, at least, uh, the Trump administration has been really great as far as Middle Eastern relations. Uh, The Abraham Accords obviously have been worked out recently with a number of countries uh, deciding to reinstate foreign relations with Israel, in some cases, in state relations for the first time. And that is progress for a very key ally in the Middle East. Um, and more countries, including possibly Saudi Arabia, are set to also join the accords. So I think that's really important part of withdrawing troops from the Middle East, as well as attempting to stabilize what's been a really chaotic region over the last four decades-ish. And domestically, I think the big thing uh, for me would be the Trump administration at least attempting to to hold the balance of uh, institutions in the United States. So for that, I mean like the Supreme Court and the Senate, which have both been sections of the government that have come under attack by, I believe, uh, by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, we've seen Joe Biden refuse to indicate whether or not he'll pack the court, which will in essence make the Supreme Court a legislative body, the second legislative body, as going along with Congress and adding states as well. If you add, for example, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, you run the risk of having a permanent majority in the Senate of Democrats because Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico tend to vote more Democratic. And so then that you lose all chance of any important debate within the arguably most important body of Congress and the Senate um, by doing that. And that goes, you're, you're shutting off immediately almost half the country if you deny a Republican majority in the Senate, which will, I believe, spell civil war potentially. We've seen in history, and at least in this country, that anytime there is a debate about adding states to the union, there's usually some harsh things that follow. So obviously you had, uh, during the civil war period, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, that led to uprisings and across the country, and then obviously that led to the civil war and years after. So things like that concern me. Um, I will just say the character of Donald Trump does not really play well into any of this. I I vote for him reluctantly. I don't believe that he is an appropriate diplomatic figure to handle these sorts of um, policies by Biden. 
uh, or to at least counter them. Uh, I think he is extremely wearing. I think his tweets are terrible. I think his rhetoric has been terrible for the past four years, but we don't have the choice of another figure to stand up to Biden-Harris and to a increasingly growing radical left section of the Democratic Party. You know, I vote for, I'm going to probably be voting for Trump, but I won't be doing it with a a clear conscience necessarily, because I do think that he is not th- what the Republican Party is about. I think he is the antithesis of it. And he has become like a, a populist figure who has a cult-like following I don't think any president's ever seen. Uh, and I'm referring to even Ronald Reagan, who won 49 states in 84. He did not even have the cultish idolatry of a following that Trump has. So I don't like that because my view of the presidency is one of where all branches of the federal government stay out of my life. And seeing that Donald Trump is such a a present figure in everyday life, I I have concerns. But for those, anyway, to go back to the original question, those are the two main reasons policy-wise that I will be voting for him. Um, I just wanted to respond to two of the things you said really quick before I got into my two main points. Um, one of them is that Biden actually has responded um, about his views on court packing. He said he was not a fan, um, which is a very like grandpa way to say that, but he did say he wasn't a fan of um, court packing. Um, and the other thing is that, as you said, if um, DC, I'm from DC, um, if DC and Puerto Rico um, are represented, then that would be a more democratic lean to our representation. Well, if that's how the people in those areas feel, then they should be represented in their own government. And you can't just leave those two sections, especially Puerto Rico. Like we we really just came into their land and we're like, you're part of our country now. So not even to give them to give them any representation in our system of government, I feel like is very unfair. Um, and then to tell them that because they they feel a certain way about our policies um, that they can't participate, I feel like is even more unfair. Um, but anyway, um, my two main points that I would say about why I have voted for Joe Biden. Number one would be climate. Um, He has committed to a $2 trillion plan to improve the climate, um, which includes net zero emissions by 2050, um, a carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035, um, and 100% zero emission vehicles. Um, This is super important to me because as we've seen, especially this year, like the entire West Coast is on fire and there are sea levels rising and the um, temperature of the globe is going up. And so there's like a lot of a lot of research surrounding why climate change is a really, really pressing issue. And I feel like for myself, obviously I can't speak for anyone else, but I feel like that climate is the biggest issue facing us right now because really nothing else is going to matter if we can't live on our planet. Um, So I think that Joe Biden's climate plan has really become more robust recently. He started out with kind of a shaky climate plan um, and then he established a task force with part of the um, Sanders campaign, and they really like rounded it out. Um, They've talked about retrofitting retrofitting buildings to make them more energy efficient, um, establishing a civilian climate core to manage the forests and sustain the wetlands and repair irrigation. Um, And they would repair a lot of infrastructure to make sure that it runs on clean energy. Um, And all of this would create millions of jobs, especially the um, climate core Um, and, you know, all the construction that goes into rebuilding infrastructure and building new um, affordable housing that runs on clean energy, um, that would be a huge, a huge help to the economy, which is obviously not doing super well right now. And also with regards to environmental justice, which was a big part of the Green New Deal, um, he said that he will establish a climate justice division of the Department of Justice to address the outsized impacts on um, marginalized communities. So I think all of that is really good, especially when we see that Trump's record on the environment has been that he's tried to just roll back environmental regulations and not really put anything in place that would that would equip us for the climate disaster that is definitely coming. And he's taken us out of the Paris Climate Accord. Um, Biden would put us back in and try and get more of a, a global task force to work on this so that we can all work together. It's not just a piecemeal, you know, country by country effort. 
So that's the main thing that's super important to me. I would say the second thing is healthcare, especially we're seeing right now because of the pandemic. That's really like a huge part of people's lives. Biden has said he was commit to protecting the Affordable Care Act, provide more choice and reduce cost of healthcare, especially for people who are, you know, near the poverty line or below it. He will also make the system less complex to navigate. And he will provide a new public health option that is kind of like Medicare that would help more people get insured. And he would lower the limit on the cost of coverage from 9.6% of your income to 8.5%, which make it a lot easier for people to um, get more access to coverage. And also with regards to prescription drug costs, that's been a huge topic recently. I remember it being talked about in some of the recent debates. He would repeal the exception that drug corporations don't have to negotiate with Medicare over prescription prices, so they can just set them at whatever they want. With that repealed, then there would be a lot more competition. We wouldn't have these like exorbitant prices that we see. So I think that's really important. Um, underneath that is like a subcategory. He would also protect the right to abortion and access to comp- contraception. Um, and he would codify Roe v. Wade so that states can't like repeal it state by state. And he would also expand mental health care. So those are all super important um, to me and to my loved ones. You know, like I know a lot of people who ha- who don't have insurance or have, you know, pretty shaky insurance. And it's really important to me that people know that they have that they're covered, um, especially while we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's really got no end in sight at this point. So those are my main two things, I would say. All right. So. As Ava alluded to, uh, climate change is an increasingly important issue to voters, uh, especially younger voters. So President Trump has called climate change a hoax, and Biden has been criticized by some for his uncertain stance on the Green New Deal and refusal to ban fracking. So I don't want to attribute either of the candidates' views specifically to y'all. However, Brandon, as a young voter, do you agree with the president's stance on climate issues? And Ava, do you find Biden's climate policies to be sufficient or do you want more of a commitment from him to more sweeping environmental policy changes? Uh, So as I said before, I think Trump's rhetoric has been garbage. I I do believe climate change is real. It's important that we acknowledge that because it is real. Whether or not, I don't, I'm not there to tell you how much is human a cause, how much is natural, but I do know it exists and it could serve as a definite problem. Well, first, you know, Ava had mentioned the Paris Climate Accords. You know, that's great in theory, but the fact is that the number, at least top three polluters in the world of China and India are also in those accords. And they've done everything but reduce their carbon emissions. They've actually increased them. So I I don't think that the actual being in, in a global community of of trying to stop climate change is going to do anything when the United States can reduce emissions all they want. And the more, the better. That's great. But if we're not also holding countries in the climate accords accountable to reduce their emissions as well, then we're not doing much to help because those countries obviously contribute more carbon to the atmosphere than we do. So if we hypothetically reduced our carbon emissions to zero, we're talking about a slight, slight change of possible change. As far as the regulations go, I think the Green New Deal is extremely broad and that's designed, that, that's by design. Um, it includes things that aren't relevant to climate change. Uh, it, you know, it includes things like housing and like a dumb thing like banning planes uh, in the original bill from AOC. I, I don't think that extreme swift regulations are going to do anything. I believe that because young people are so invested in the issue and young people now make up a tremendous part of American spending, the American economy. I think they will specifically target companies who are not living up to their standards of taking care of the planet. So a a company like uh, Apple, who announced they'd be carbon neutral by 2030, because they have immense pressure from their consumers and the rest of the world to do it, they'll be able to do it on their own without any government regulation. And so if they want to make those changes, that's great. But I don't believe that any regulations about the climate should be government imposed. Just generally speaking, you know, if, if buildings want to retrofit to become more energy efficient, more healthy for the environment, that's great. But it should be on the accord of the property owners, not the government, because then you're infringing on, I believe you're infringing on rights at that point. For for certain things, I, I don't believe it's, it's just the government's role at any level to step in and say, hey, you need to change your building because we said so. I think you should incentivize it to begin with. Um, if we're going to spend so much money on it, which to begin with, I'm not a fan of, but if we have to, then I think you should incentivize it just like traditionally the United States has given tax breaks and incentives for 
uh, alternate sources of energy. Uh, so for nuclear power, for wind power, solar, there's all incentives now. Those are in the books. So if we could expand that to reduce the amount of buildings and other structures that are damaging the environment, I think that that should be the plan, not sweeping regulation of government intervention. Um, so with regards to what you just said about extending tax incentives, that's actually in Joe Biden's uh, climate plan. Um, he has said that in order to reach the goal of carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035, he'll extend tax incentives to um, construction companies and to um, new uh, corporations so that they actually will be incentivized, like you were saying, to do those things. So that's really the, the root of Joe Biden's plan is what you just said. Um, what you were saying before about the Green New Deal, how much more broad it is. I'm actually a really big fan of the Green New Deal. I would prefer that Joe Biden was, you know, a fan of it also. However, um, I understand that that is pretty radical, um, especially for the place that we're in right now. And I think that he, like I mentioned before, he's really made a lot of progress over the course of his campaign. And I think that that's been really valuable. And even if he has policies that are not up to the level that I would want them to be to, I recognize that some progress is better than no progress. And I think that looking at Trump's record of, of rolling back environmental reg regulations and then looking at Biden's commitment to um, creating more sustainability and creating more, creating better solutions um, for the future with regards to climate, that really is a, is a big deal to me. Um, also, what you were saying earlier about the Paris Climate Accord, um, you said like, you know, our, our main focus should be um, holding other countries to their commitments. Well, we're not in it right now, or we've we've taken our taken ourselves out and we can't hold anybody else to their commitments if we haven't even committed to anything. So I think first of all, we have to get back into the Paris Climate Accord if we're gonna if we're gonna say we have the authority to to tell anyone else what to do. We need to get our own act together. And so I think that both of those things, you know, more more of a of a progression towards the ideals of the Green New Deal, even if we're not going that far right now, um, and also reinstating our commitment to the Paris Climate Accord and working with other countries, holding them accountable, them holding us accountable. Um, I think that a global solution to climate change is really what it's going to take. Yeah. Also, what you said about the Green New Deal, there are things in there like housing that aren't relevant. Um, I would argue that climate change cannot be a single issue that doesn't impact anything else just because the impacts of where we live, the world we live in, the country we live in are going to impact everything we do. That includes housing, that includes education, that includes healthcare, that includes access to literally all the resources you can imagine because, you know, you step outside and the air quality is terrible. That impacts so many things that impacts people with respiratory diseases, especially during a respiratory pandemic. So I, I, I take issue with, with anything you know, that things are in the Green New Deal that shouldn't be there, because I think it's very well laid out. And I think that it takes such a good approach to including so many different issues that we haven't really talked about before that really do, you know, are impacted by, by climate change. And I think that's what's so great about the Green New Deal is that they made such an effort to include all these different sectors of our lives that are going to be impacted by inevitably when our water quality goes down and our air quality goes down and our food supply starts to go down if we don't take this seriously. Brandon, do you want to respond or should we move on? Uh, yeah, I'll just respond really quickly. Sure. So, I mean, in 2019, uh, the United States declined. They led the world in CO2 in decline of CO2 emissions. That's according to the uh, International Energy Agency. So I think that's good progress. And I think that's indicative that you don't need large structured and sweeping policy to do that. That's not to excuse President Trump talking like, again, I will continue to say it for the rest of this uh, debate. He talks like a, a pure clown about certain issues. And that's not you can't excuse that. But going, you know, again, going back to the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal will cost around $40 trillion. We cannot print money. That is a lot of money. We are already trillions of dollars in debt uh, and growing, obviously, with the new stimulus package it had, I mean, inevitably on the way. The, this is money that we can't take up. So I think if you focus on one issue, if you want to focus on making sure our air is clear, our water is clean. I think those are all good issues to take on, but if, and at a reasonable cost, but to go in and say, oh, $40 trillion, we can't just spend it like that. We're not money printers. And, and as far as also what Ava had said about, we can't hold countries accountable and that we're, you know, if we're not in the Paris Agreement. Uh, we were up until 2017. And in the Obama administration, an administration Biden obviously was a part of as vice president. 
Uh, they didn't hold China accountable. China continued to just pour carbon emissions into the atmosphere as well as India. So there isn't necessarily a good track record that will indicate that Joe Biden will adequately hold countries like China and India accountable. Uh, even the European uh, Union refuses to do anything. Unfortunately, China especially has grown into such a superpower that uh, and we saw at the early onset of the pandemic that no one wants to even address them about any of their violations, whether it be human rights violations, climate violations, because they control pretty much most of the world economy in that sense in production. So that's another issue that I think Joe Biden is weak on is uh, China policy. See, so yeah, I, I, pre- I, I don't agree that uh, Joe Biden will handle the accord any better than his, uh, President Obama did or any other world leader right now. Um, I'll just say that um, what you're saying about the Green New Deal, that's more, you know, obviously Joe Biden has not committed to the Green New Deal. His plan is only $2 trillion. I know that's still a lot of money. But as I said before, I think this is really an existential threat. um, And we don't have time to waste arguing about the deficit. Um, I think we can argue about the deficit into oblivion. But you know, the fact is, is that if we don't do something drastic, that really is a huge monetary commitment to this issue that we're not going to have 10 more years. You know, like, I think that if there was ever a time to create a big financial commitment that, yeah, you know, might require a big reorganization of our priorities, I think it's right now. Is that ideal? No, but we've let this go far too long. And, you know, there's not really much else we can do about it now besides commit everything we have to stopping climate change. All right, now we're going to transition to the topic of the pandemic, COVID-19. Obviously, there's a lot to be said here, so I'm just going to frame a very simple question, which is, has the president's response to the pandemic been sufficient, and how would Biden have been more effective or not been as effective um, at handling the coronavirus outbreak? Um, So I think that, as we've seen, Trump has really not um, done a good job at handling the pandemic. 200,000 people are dead right now, and it's growing every day. Um, We've gone back up to a higher case count, new case count every day than we've seen in months so far. Obviously, the, the virus itself is not Trump's fault. It's not. There's nothing that he could have done to prevent it from coming into the country at all. However, um, when it came out that he knew about it in what, in January and, and declined to inform us that, that the plague was coming, I think that that really was the first problem in his response. I think that worlds of difference would have been made if he had at least even let us know that there was a threat. If he had listened then or now to his advisors and to his scientists that he that he has on his board. I think that a lot more lives would have been saved. Um, I think a lot of people would not have gotten this virus. Um, so much of this was preventable um, and still is, and we're still not doing anything about it. We're just trying to go back to business as normal. We should have started testing and um, allocation of PPE and worker protection so much sooner. He should have worked with scientists instead of contradicting them at every press briefing. He should not have tried to put public health guidelines at odds with the economy, saying like, oh, if we if we lock down to save lives, then the economy will will go down. Well, those things are not necessarily in contradiction. Um, and to frame it like that is really dangerous, I think, as we've seen. And he's focused on the vaccine, um, which is good. Obviously, we want, we want a vaccine and it's good. We should be working towards that. But until then, nobody knows when it's going to come for sure. And we can't just sit around and wait for it and just let people die. Biden has said that his plan, day one of inauguration, he will create a a pandemic testing board um, that will provide free regular testing to everyone. He will create a contact tracing workforce, which also will create 100,000 new jobs um, for contact tracing. He will protect healthcare workers um, by giving them uh, paid sick leave um, and PPE. Um, And he will coordinate a global approach to develop a vaccine um, so that we're all working together. It's it's not a a private industry competition. He will have guaranteed paid sick leave uh, for COVID-19. And I think that that is a really good um, stance to take on this. Obviously, all of this has come very late in the process where, you know, however many months we are into this pandemic and we're still not really addressing it at all. And so I think that any any sort of effort that Biden is going to give us will be better than nothing. Uh, so as far as, again, I will say this probably for the rest of this uh, time, Trump's rhetoric, again, got in his own way. He said a lot of stupid stuff. A couple of days ago, he said something about Dr. Fauci. You know, 
whether or not you agree with Dr. Fauci, I, I mean, it shouldn't come to that. You shouldn't publicly voice it because Dr. Fauci has been seen as a person within the country that knows what he's talking about. After all, he is an infectious disease expert. Um, I don't necessarily think that Trump, there's no evidence to suggest that if Trump did X, that 220,000 people wouldn't be dead. It's a tragedy. Um, but I don't think that any other president would be in a better position. Uh, you're limited. So obviously you can't implement a national mask mandate. That's That falls to a, a state thing uh, by our constitution. You know, governors, even governors, uh, Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo, they said early on that when we told, you know, the president that we needed ventilators or PPE, we got them. And, you know, the United States is producing a heaping ton of PPE and ventilators daily, weekly, and they're distributing them across the country and around the world. You were very limited in what you could do because the virus does spread. And ultimately, it came down to what people would do. You can't get into the inner workings of people's lives. People will still try and mass gather. They're trying to do it right now in Williamsburg and across, you know, southern Brooklyn. I just think that his rhetoric has has allowed for more people to feel comfortable in doing things that they shouldn't feel necessarily so comfortable with, you know, not wearing a mask, not social distancing. These are not entirely proven uh, ways of preventing the spread of COVID-19, but they are certainly effective and they have been at least they've shown some promise in, in saving people's lives and preventing people from getting it. And a basic thing like not directly encouraging mask wearing uh, when necessary and doing those sorts of things, those preventative measures has been extremely damaging. And it's just not a good look for him. I just think that reducing what Trump has done in the face of this pandemic to just being his rhetoric, um, I think minimizes all of the loss and the grief that has that has come across this country i think that yes people would have died they would have died no matter what because it's a deadly disease that we didn't really know anything about however masks do help and i think that if trump had done anything other than never wear a mask and never say okay not never wear a mask he started to wear one more now often since he himself got it um but i think that if he had had more of a of a rhetoric that encouraged people to wear masks, encouraged people not to gather, told people that this was really important and that this was, we didn't know that much about it and therefore we should be so careful. I think so many more people would be alive right now. And I think that minimizing people's grief by saying, oh, he should have had some better rhetoric, but what can you do? I think that that is really just not admissible in my eyes. Um, one of my closest friends who has a lot of underlying health conditions um, got coronavirus because she um, had to continue working throughout the pandemic. Would she have gotten it anyway? Maybe. But that to me just demonstrates like this has touched everyone's lives. And to say that, oh, maybe we could have done better, but why would we have tried when it's going to be here anyway? I think that that is just really a dangerous way to live and that that results in so much more death and suffering and lifelong health consequences that we really could have avoided. Also, you said there's no way to know if like other a different leader could have handled this differently. Well, we can look at other countries. Obviously, no single other country has completely like eradicated this, I think, except for New Zealand. But we can see that there is a difference when leaders took this seriously, when they really implemented a large scale contact tracing system, they were able to maybe not get back to life immediately, but they prevented a lot of death. We are like leading the world <laughs> in countries that have had a terrible response to this. We have so many new cases, so many new deaths. And I just think that we could have gone about this so many better ways. You also have to address in this whole pandemic, the, the response from the governors. You know, Governor Cuomo shipped tens of thousands of elderly residents into or people infected with COVID into nursing homes. And now tens of thousands of elderly people in the state of New York are dead. And he's busy writing a book about how he handled it, which in the middle of it, this is not over. He wrote a book. It's on the stands at Barnes & Noble right now. He drew a pretty picture of this weird hill with his daughter's boyfriend hanging off a twig. You know, he's doing all these things and nobody's asking him questions. And he, anytime someone does, he avoids it and says, well, oh, it's a Republican talking point. It's not because now tens of thousands in between New York, New Jersey, Michigan, uh, and I think, yeah, just those three states, you're looking at a death toll that's incomparable to most countries. And, and no one's had an answer for it. But Trump, 
again, he says a lot of stupid stuff and he might have not been so, he probably, no, he hasn't been effective in a lot of ways, but he's the one answering the questions for an issue that states have also botched completely. So I think it's fair to say that Trump has not handled this properly, but it's also unfair to not address the fact that governors have also been just as bad, if not worse at handling this than, than the president. And as far as Europe, like other countries go, most countries, if not all in Europe are seeing a spike, Great Britain is, uh, Italy is, Germany is. So I don't think there's any, you know, leader. I mean, Germany especially took it very seriously and they're seeing a rise in numbers. It's important we don't see the total number of cases and all of those statistics in a vacuum because the United States is not alone in dealing with this. And also of note to remember, we're also not getting accurate information coming out of China. So we don't know what's going on over there. We're, we've been told by the government there that they have zero deaths, uh, which is obviously not true. But I, I like, you know, the main point I want to make is it's important that we address everyone involved in handling this uh, in terms of leadership, not just the president. Moving into the Supreme Court, uh, y'all both actually wrote articles about the Supreme Court. I think it would be interesting to get both of your perspectives on it. So the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg caused concern among some of some different people about different social causes like women's rights or the rights of LGBTQ people. People are worried that those rights are now in jeopardy. Alternatively, President Trump has maintained the position that he has every right to nominate the Supreme Court justice. What are both of your perspectives on the current Supreme Court situation? I know that you all diverge by quite a significant amount. Um, I think that um, based on the um, nomination by Obama of Merrick Garland um, several years ago, how that was blocked and was not allowed to go through with much more time um, than we have right now before the election. Um, I think just based on that alone, that there's no grounds for the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and pushing through her her um, position on the court right now. However, um, I know that it's looking like it's going to go through anyway. I think really all I have to say about that is that when you compare this situation with Merrick Garland's situation, they are very similar, and that that just really <laughs> it just really is not fair to look at them to look at them differently, um, especially when so much of the Senate is out right now because so many of them have coronavirus um, or have recently had it. Um, I think this is really not the time to be holding a hearing. Um, I also think, as I stated in the article, that Amy Coney Barrett is not the right person to nominate to the Supreme Court, but that's really a, pos a personal belief that I hold, and I understand that that really depends on a person's um, beliefs and what they want to protect. I would like to protect my rights, um, but I understand that other people might have different priorities. Uh, so um, if those that read my article, they know entirely how I feel about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, as far as the nomination process goes, the key difference, well, first of all, I will acknowledge, though I would like her seat filled immediately, and it looks like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that is, uh, her seat filled immediately, and it likely will be uh, within the coming week. Uh, it's important to recognize that I, most Republicans recognize it's a power grab. Republicans and Democrats have been in this scenario multiple times over the course of a number of decades, and both sides have flip-flopped. So you have the Merrick Garland uh, example in 2016, Joe Biden had one of these examples when he was in the Senate in, I believe, 91, uh, or one of those around there. Uh, so it's, it's very common uh, for this to happen. It is a power grab. But I, I think a lot of the fear, people aren't angry so much as the nomination process and how this is all going. I just saw a poll today that most Americans from the Huffington Post, really, that most Americans are in favor of uh, nominating her to the court, uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the court. Uh, I think the real issue people have is her views. Um, you know, we've heard for all three of President Trump's nominees that, you know, they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And, you know, they haven't done that. That's not how the court works. Uh, you need to present a case for you. Can, the Supreme Court just can't say, OK, it's it's overturned and then now it's done. Uh, it, there needs to be a case in the court for that to actually happen. So I know the big contention against Amy Coney Barrett is her belief on abortion, which I also share. The bottom line is, it, it like I said, these things just don't happen. It, it, it's not one strike of the gavel and all of a sudden Roe v. Wade's overturned. And even if that is a possible case for it to be overturned, it can be. And I think it, it's worth getting a look at, at least because 
it is not a case like Brown versus the Board of Education, where these are cases that are that were decided and are extremely uh, important to American life. Obviously, the end, ending segregation, all cases regarding that are extremely important to American life, and, mu- and they must remain that way because it's been decided and it's part of American life, as I said. With Roe v. Wade, there is still a great amount of debate. The fact that we're even having this conversation just shows that there is a tremendous amount of debate about the legality of abortion and the actual case itself, which was decided really poorly under the, the belief that some some rights, such as life, are so are so important that no no law can can touch it, which is quite it doesn't make much sense because there is a due process clause. But uh, aside from that. I believe that people just need to understand what an original originalist is, which is what Amy Coney Barrett is. Uh, and just that's just reading the Constitution as it was written. And if you do that, you'll have cases where you might not expect her and other originalists to go vote the way they vote in terms of court cases. Uh, you see Justice Scalia, he voted in favor of a, in a case where that permitted flag burning, even though he believed that it was completely wrong to do so. He voted uh in the favor of the person doing the flag burning. And it's important to remember that, you know, an originalist judge is not devoted to one political ideology. They're just devoted to the constitution. And I don't think there's anything to be scared of with that because I think the constitution is a very solid document that will uphold the necessary protections and rights of American people. Yeah, um, I think just going in order of, of what you said, um, I know that Roe v. Wade can't just be overturned with a strike of a gavel. As you said, it does have to have a case first to come up in the court for them to overturn it. A lot of these cases have been coming up from the state court. We've seen in recent years, these cases have been, you know, starting in states and be coming up. And so I think that that is definitely a possibility that it will come. I know that that wouldn't just be something they all decided, you know, just one day. But I think that there is a large possibility, as you said, that Roe v. Wade might be overturned, and that frightens me personally. And as you said, it's not one of those cases that Roe v. Wade is not one of those cases that is extremely important to American life. But then you said that Roe v. Wade, like it's the the importance of right to life is so important that it should not be touched by judicial matters. So it is important. It's important to me as a person who owns a uterus, very important to me to be in charge of it. Um, and I, I resent the, the characterization of such an important issue of um, women's access to contraception and to abortion as not that important of an issue. Um, I think especially, as you mentioned, um, one of the other cases, Brown versus Board of Education, how that was extremely important. And it was because it helped people of color um, in this country. And I think that protecting women's access to healthcare and to abortion and to contraception, that is very much a matter of the lives of people of color as well. That is, you know, something that really touches their lives disproportionately. Um, and so I think that you can see that there is an equivalence of the importance to people you know, with this sort of case and with other landmark cases. With regards to what you said about originalism, I know that we both touched on this on our articles. Um, My personal view is that um, originalism does not really take into account the fact that um, at the time of writing, the constitution did not include a lot of groups of the population. And that includes, you know, people of color, people who were enslaved at the time, black people. It does not include LGBTQ plus people, um, does not include women. And so I think that reading the constitution, this is just my own personal opinion. I think that reading the constitution um, that way really excludes the rights of a lot of people. We've just now come to realize, I think after all this time, um, we've made some progress in, in enfranchising people and to go back on that just because we've decided that the constitution has to be read exactly word for word as it was written you know, two centuries ago, I think that is is egregious. Um, also, I would say that you said there's not much to be scared of with this new um, court. Um, on the first day of this term, um, Scalia and Alito, they introduced um, the idea that they would um, consider overturning the case which allowed for gay rights and gay marriage. And that impacts me personally as an LGBTQ plus person. And I think that, that is a lot to be scared of. I think that a lot of people who lead the discourse around the courts and what they might do maybe are more removed from actually having their rights taken away from them. But to be a person who is facing multiple attacks and to not even, 
you know, I'm also super privileged and to not even be a person who has that many things being, <laughs> being attacked by these courts, I'm still scared. And, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to, to be a, a, a person of color right now, you know? And so I think that there is a lot to be scared of, um, would be my, would be my final point. Like you, you had, uh, Ava had referenced uh, Obergefell v. Hodges. And, and I think the case with that and a lot of other cases, such as abortion, uh, Roe v. Wade was a federal allowing abortion federally on fe- the federal level. There is no reason that if it is the will of the people, I will disagree with it and I will probably fight a tooth and nail, especially for abortion. You know, these things can become law and Congress can write the bill to make it become law. And if it's the will of the people, it will get done. We've seen that historically, that those types of things will get done. Obviously, great example would be the Civil Rights Act of 64. When it's the will of the people to, in that case, expand civil rights for uh, people of color, I, I think it will get done and it should be done uh, if, if that is the case. You know, I think a lot of the cases, so um, like Oberfeld v. Hodges, um, it's that the government Scalia had said that because the government necessarily doesn't have the an interest in marriage. It really shouldn't be involved in it. If if they want to craft a federal law, they absolutely can, but that should be right left up to the states. And within those states and localities, it could also be left to the will of the people. And in most cases, those do go forth, even in the most red states, obviously like Alabama, Mississippi, you'll have a tougher time with that. But I think in most states, you'll have that um, ability and because most states have already legalized gay marriage as is and that being said i don't see that being overturned anytime soon that just doesn't seem likely because again that's one of those cases that's ingrained in american society and i think it's one of those cases that will not be touched because of the amount of backlash but regardless the main point i would just want to make to wrap this part up with the court is that no matter what decision the court makes congress still has the ability to create and craft laws that will serve the people as they see fit, even if it's different from the court. And so people have to remember, that's why we have a separation of powers. And the judici- judicial branch is not meant to be just a second legislative body. It's supposed to you know, obviously check the constitutionality of laws, but you know, still laws can be passed to protect people, uh, LGBTQ people, uh, all people, and pass laws that, again, like I said, the, the people see fit. All right, thank you. We're going to- I just thought of that really quick. I'm so sure. sorry. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say, um, if you said that the that a law protecting rights will be passed if it's the will of the people, I would just like to say I think it's very dangerous to say that people's rights should be the will of other people. If I say I would like to have rights, please, and somebody else is like, sorry, that's not my will. Um, I don't think I'm just supposed to be like, okay, sorry for asking. I think that that really should be a matter that is protected um, under the government that is created to serve me. That's really all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I so like I mean, like abortion rights. We we could that could be a long discussion. But I, I as far as you know, gay marriage, civil parts of society that I I think most Americans can totally agree on, despite maybe differences in religious views. I think certain things like that I I think are unquestioned. I think even if you if you created a bill right now in Congress saying to federally recognize the legality of gay marriage, I think even. President Trump would sign that because it is just widely agreed upon. And, you know, religiously, you can make arguments against it. But I think it's one of those things. It's, it's ingrained in society. Just pass the bill, make it law. I would be totally in favor of a case like that. But you do make a decent point, Ava, about, you know, rights, you know, what you said about rights. I, I just I always look to the Civil Rights Act of 64. You know, it is possible that we can reach those points of universally agreed upon truths. And I just hope we get there so more people see uh, all the benefits of the United States. So obviously there's a lot of topics we haven't covered. There are a myriad of things that are important in this election that people disagree on. I think that it's not a controversial thing to say that this election is contentious. It's polarizing. It feels so personal to so many people, I think, in a way that other elections hasn't, where it's kind of just a thing that you worry about every four years. Um, I think that, especially now, the candidate that you choose to support, that signals something to people of the opposite spectrum, political spectrum. Um, People are quick to make assumptions about where you stand and your morals and who you are as a person, depending on the candidate that you chose. I think that's just the nature of this election. And so with that being said, and that kind of dynamic in mind, what do you think the best way to move forward will be if your candidate loses? Um, 
bait, like, you know, put whatever kind of stock you want into this. Obviously polls show different things from different sources. Right now, the 538 model shows that Democrats are projected to take the Senate. I think also that Biden is projected to win as of now in the 538 model, which again, take as you will. But Brandon, how do you think Republicans will respond if Trump is voted out? Um, you've talked multiple times about Trump's sort of following and their devotion to him as a candidate and as a man. And what kind of fallout do you anticipate if he loses? And then of course, Ava, if Biden loses, what do you anticipate in, in general? I think that so many people have view the stakes in this election as life and death, and they very well may be, I think. Um, even when it comes to the Supreme Court candidate, if Amy Coney Barrett doesn't come through, if Biden gets to put someone on the Supreme Court, if Trump gets to put someone on the Supreme Court, um, that's a lifelong appointment. It's going to impact us for decades to come. And so, I mean, what does the future look like? It's, it's probably impossible to say, but I think that is a major concern for so many people is the immediate fallout following the election. And so what do you make of that? And what do you hope to see even if your candidate loses this election? Um, I think <clears throat> the important thing is, you know, there's been talk about election fraud um, and there have been certain number of instances where you have ballots that were found on the side of the road or a postal, postal worker throwing some ballots out. Um, the way I see it though, Trump is losing by a margin that he wasn't even close to in 2016 at this time. I don't have, I don't see any way he could win. So I'm already on the acceptance phase of things. Um, I think people need to do what we're doing now. Uh, we've lost, I think both sides are really guilty of this. We've lost any concept of civil debate and seeing past our political views. I, this is the point I was making with Trump uh, when I said earlier that it was very idolatrous to see him as like this, this figure, uh, this like leading the charge. I think it's extremely dangerous because then you attach himself, yourself to, to him and all of his views. Uh, and I, I don't think that's good because that causes extreme division divisiveness. So I think people need to back off and they just need to live their lives as best as they can and use the freedom that they've been given to do just to just live, you know, life isn't politics. I love politics, but I know it's not life. You know, there's so much more to life than politics and to debate. Bottom line is, you know, has, I, I ask this even of, you know, my more left-leaning friends, has your life dramatically changed day to day with Trump in office? You could say that he's, his tweets have stressed you out. You could say that some of the policies that he's tried or has implemented have stressed you out, but domestically in your own small little life, um, have you really been affected? You know, people are still, maybe pre-COVID, people are still enjoying time with their friends and family. People are still, at least we had, you know, before COVID, a lot of uh, job growth, people were less people weren't employed. Um, so I think just live your life. You know, I, I think Republicans need to separate themselves from Trump. I think you saw Senator Ben Sass doing that a couple of days ago in a call with his donors, separating himself from Trump and saying completely credible and justifiable things about his character and his policies. Um, and, and you have to just be willing to accept a, a Biden presidency. Uh, it will not be fun. You're definitely not going to agree on the policies. I definitely won't. Um, but it, it's time that we come back together and just recognize that we are people. We are all American. I, I really think that it's just become so lost. We have tried to divide ourselves on every issue, on every characteristic of, of humanity. So if, if we could just do that and just recognize the good in each other and from a, a Jesuit standpoint, at least since this is Fordham, you know, recognizing that we are all children of God, you know, there's, there's definitely more to us than our political standpoints and our, the person that we voted for. And I hope that those diehard Trump supporters 
who, you know, proudly call themselves Patriots. I hope they, they recognize that being a Patriot is not just supporting Donald Trump. It's, it's being an American and respecting the, the will of the people and respecting people who, dif- who differentiate with them in terms of political views. Um, with regards to what you said just now about how, you know, life isn't politics and we can talk about something else, we can enjoy time with our families. Um, I think that life is politics for so many people. I think that's, you know, lost on people who are privileged enough to just be able to kind of see this as not a hobby, but something that you can be interested in and then stop thinking about and go home and have dinner and go to sleep. But I think for so many people, the policies that the president makes that we make in the Senate, in the House, on local levels, those impact people in their lives because the way that we live our lives is inherently controlled by the government just because that's the way we've set up this country um and i think so much like we've said about healthcare, about climate change you know about housing all of that impacts people and just because you know it's not me or you doesn't mean that there's not somebody out there who's living their lives the way they are because of the choices our elected officials have made um as for what you said about life day to day under Trump, no, maybe it hasn't gotten necessarily worse for me, but I think it can be so much better. Like that's why I care so much about this is that for me and for so many people around me, for my loved ones, for people I don't know, um, I think that we have so much more progress left that we can make and to just say, oh, you know, well, it hasn't gotten worse. And so what's there to complain about? I think we'll we haven't even gotten to an acceptable point yet where we've we've made enough progress. I think there's so many more people who are not protected yet by our government that could be. Um, and so I think that we really, no matter the outcome of the election, um, I think for me personally, it's important to keep trying to make change. Um, in the Senate, there's been a huge um, progressive insurgence um, in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Recently, we saw in the 2018 midterms, um, and also to, to get involved in local politics, that makes a huge difference. Um, you know, your your sheriff, your governor, your, you know, county board, um, your prosecutor, all those people impact your lives, whether you recognize it or not. Um, and so I think getting involved with local politics, realizing that politics isn't just who wins the presidency, um, that's going to be my way forward. Um, I'm going to try to encourage people around me to do that. I think that we really have a lot to gain from focusing on local politics um, instead of just directing all of our energy towards the presidency. Um, and so that's what I'm going to look forward to doing after the election. All right. I suppose I would say just once again, thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate your very thoughtful answers and the respectful conversation that we were able to have here. We hope that you'll come on Retrospect again in the future to give more perspectives and talk to us some more. But just thank you both for coming on today. It was really great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. This has been Retrospect. Thanks once again to Brandon and Ava for their participation in our dialogue today. We here at Retrospect really encourage all our listeners to double check their voter registration status and take the time to research all candidates and ballot measures they will be voting on this November 3rd, not just the presidential election. Also, be sure to keep an eye out for our second and final special election episode, which will be coming out next Thursday. As always, I'm Kate Galliford. And I'm Corbin Gregg. Everyone, please take care, and we'll be back next week.